Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cloud Wars Live, where we're exploring today's digital revolution by speaking with thought leaders and business executives who are changing how the world lives, works, plays, learns, and dreams. Our guest today is Chris Lockhead, one of our regulars here on the Digital All-Stars. Lockhead on Different is his subject, and Chris has been a multiple-time CMO at big companies, a serial entrepreneur. <clears throat> he is one of the world's top podcasters. I think arguably now with some of the awards he's getting, the number one podcaster and author. He's also been an advisor to executives, coaches, category creators, a little bit of everything. Chris, welcome back. It's always a pleasure to have you. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. I'm glad to be back. <laughs> Good to see you. Good to see you. So uh, everybody, if you have a look over Chris' left shoulder, there's a surfboard there at the line, I believe from the Ramones. So uh, we may get into a little surf talk here in a little bit. Chris, you, you sent over a number of things you wanted to talk about. It sounds like you're pretty pumped up. You've got some fun things going on. Before you get into some of the details, you really seem to have this uh, bent now for things going on about digital data and you know where that's headed. So just give us a little backdrop on that and then talk to us a little bit about uh, some of these very, very cool things you've, you've wanted to discuss today. Well, you know, Bob, I just pretty much every day that goes by, I get more bullish and more excited about, you, know, you can call it whatever you want, our digital future, the data age, the digital transformation, whatever you want to call it, the digitization. Um, but, you know, my, my buddy, Kevin Maney, who helped uh, co-author co uh, Play Bigger um, with me, his, his book after that's called Unscaled. And, you know, he, he essentially has an argument that says, um, the internet, well, of course, was a giant revolution. And then things take a step function when we get to the cloud. You know, and I think Kevin's really right. And, and here's what I'm reminded of. I remember back in the mid-90s, uh, John Doerr of the legendary venture capital firm, Kleiner Perkins, at one point famously said that the internet was underhyped. And at the time, he took a bunch of heat for it, saying, oh, you know, this guy is investing in all these internet businesses and he's just saying bullshit like this to kind of hype up stocks and this and that and the other. And the truth is John was right. And, and, and here's the aha I've led, had lately. And of course I want to talk to you about a bunch of these things, but the net of it is I think the digital revolution, the data age, what a digital transformation, whatever we're going to end up calling this next phase that according to Kevin starts with the cloud is also under hyped. And the opportunity to make a difference for humanity, to create massively valuable businesses where others didn't exist, to, to drive massive efficiencies and optimizations in business, in science, and in society. And I know this sounds like hype. I know it does. I know some people, rah, 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 rah. I, I believe this, and I think the facts bear it out. Chris, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, uh, I believe that one of the things that happens even is, uh, so many people look at just from a business perspective on this, they try to say, like in the tech space, well, here's what existed in the traditional on-premise world. So we'll just roll that up into the cloud and the cloud will be about that big. But exactly what you're saying, it is a multiplier in many, many different dimensions. And I think that there are a lot of these projections, how big these markets will be. I think they're way underrepresented, partly because you know, they say that only about uh, 10, 15, maybe the most 20% of the traditional systems have been replaced with cloud. 
But that doesn't take into account the fact that there's going to be new stuff that this cloud possibility and capability rushes into that was never possible before. It never existed. This is greenfield, uh, you know, to a, a massive degree here. Yes. And, you know, of late, I've learned a lot from uh, two dear friends of mine, who guys I've known and respected for almost two decades. Actually, Steve, I think I've known for more than two decades. Uh, we, we do, we're, we're doing a, a two-part series on my uh, Follow Your Different podcast on digital business. And Steve Pratt's the CEO of a new startup called uh, Noodle AI, Noodle.ai. And my buddy, uh, Big Ben Ruiz, uh, he used to run the technology uh, infrastructure uh, for Visa and First Data, and he's, a, he's an expert on massively scalable digital systems and networks, uh, high fault tolerant. You know, Visa goes down like shit, shit gets weird fast, right? Uh, and so uh, both of these guys have been teaching me a lot. And, you know, there's a couple of, uh, or a handful of ahas. You know, the first one is that, you know, right now on planet Earth, there's roughly 7.8 billion of us. And by 2050, which is really not that far away, there's going to be 9.8 billion. So almost 10 billion of us. So we're going to go from a hair under eight to a hair under 10 um, uh, by 2050. And, and that represents all sorts of things. But one, one question by way of example is, well, how are we going to feed everybody? And I am in no way, shape, or form an expert on ag or, uh, you know, if you want to call it broadly, the food uh, uh, ecosystem, B but I'm learning some things. And, and there's a whole lot of innovation there. And my buddy, Big Ben Ruiz, amongst many other things, uh, is advising a startup uh, in that field called Verdant Robotics. And this outfit is trying to use big data the cloud, uh, sensors, cameras, um, uh, uh, and of course, AI, ML, uh, all of that good shit to transform farming. So imagine a scenario where we're able to have sensors on plants and we're able to detect uh, temperatures and moisture levels and um, uh, and sort of at what level, you know, there's this thing in, in, in um, farming that I didn't know anything about called chill hours. And that's the number of hours below a certain uh, temperature. And based on the number of chill hours here in Northern California, where I live, uh, you can sort of tell what kind of year it's going to be for, uh, for produce, uh, particularly for fruit. And it's essentially the more the chill hours, the better, because the, the, the trees sleep longer in hibernation when it's colder. And, and, and so there's all of this, um, what you and I might refer to as big data. And now we have all these sensors and capabilities. You know, IoT is a very real thing. So imagine IoT meets the cloud, meets ML, meets, you know, data to everything in this a sort of wholly new imagined way of doing farming to, to optimize, you know, when we do things and when do we water, when don't we water, water, when do we uh, pick fruit, when don't, don't we pick fruit, uh, when do we add nutrients and other various things to help the, the plants and trees along the way. And so, so what we're moving to is, you know, for lack of a better term, digital farming or smart farming or ML AI farming, right? And, and that, represents something incredibly 
um, exciting. And I think we're going to see more and more innovation in, in the food ecosystem as a result of this digital revolution. And I think it represents awesome opportunities for startups to create new innovative things. But, you know, I also think um, whether it's farmers themselves or whether it's uh, larger ag companies and technology companies that, you know, that are currently playing, we are really reimagining um, agriculture in the context of the modern digital capability that we have today. Chris, you know, there's sometimes that, that uh, big changes come about when people reframe an issue or reframe a question. I think for, you know, the fantastic job that farmers and agricultural companies do over time, but it's sort of been, I have this much food. How do I get, uh, I have this much land. How do I get X amount of food out of that? You reframe the question because you raise it, that we're going to add 2 billion people over the next 30 years. How are we going to feed those people? And uh, Monsanto a few years ago acquired a data sciences company in the agriculture business, and it caused Monsanto to flip their mission statement to, uh, you know, our mission is to feed the world. So from a startup like what Ben's doing, you know, with Verdant Robotics to some of these bigger companies, it's extraordinary how that reframing the question and scaling up to that. What about the, edu you know, and then you can get the education and, you know, other things like that. But it, it's so exciting now to see people like, you know, your buddies here and, and what they've been up to uh, and so forth like that. I can understand, I guess, why this general category or these types of ideas have been so inspiring to you and really get you sort of pumped up. And so there's other, lots of good things going on that you wanted to mention. Yeah. Another one that my buddy, Big Ben, you know, I adore the guy. I think he's, he's, he's a surf buddy and he's just one of these guys in the technology industry who's, who's doing a lot of incredible things. One of them he did on a um, volunteer basis is he worked with an NGO called Save the Waves. You know, as a surfer, he cares about the ocean and, and our coastal environments. And um, together they built a, a, a mobile app called Endangered Waves. And the aha was, what if we encouraged uh, surfers to crowdsource data about water quality, trash levels, marine debris, uh, changes in sea levels and coastal erosion and so forth. And it turns out there's 23 million surfers in the world. And, and the insight was surfers are an untapped resource for getting the quote unquote wisdom of the crowds going to tap into a whole new set of data around the ocean and, and the coastline. And if you could mobilize surfers to, to track things that they were seeing and experiencing, then we would have, we would have a data set that we would never have before. And, and as you know, um, you know, the cockroaches run in the light. And so when we shine a light on what's going on by, in this case, creating a whole new kind of uh, first person data set, um, then information about what we can do to preserve our oceans and our coastlines and our resources uh, changes. And, you know, he just, they just won this huge award for it. And he was over in London and I don't know, I think he met the queen and uh, maybe Gandhi was there. I don't know, but you know, very big damn deal because here's an NGO thinking in a completely new way, what, you know, you and I would call digital transformation maybe, but they're really by asking the a totally, to your point, a totally different question, which is how do we mobilize 23 million surfers to build us a data set around what's going on in the ocean such that we can take uh, great action to produce results to, to preserve our environment? Um, you know, they went off and did that. 
Chris, you know, I, I think that uh, the, the sort of last point on that, that the digital transformation, right? It's like the industrial revolution wasn't the point. The point was how do you, you know, put these capabilities, tools together? And also, Chris, in some ways, the dreams that people have together, right? And more and more, I think, especially from your buddies, some other people, this new wave of entrepreneurs I know you work with all the time, they are, they are setting out to try to tackle a set of challenges, problems, opportunities, whatever you want to call them in different ways. You enlist those 23 million surfers. We're going to start calling it the IOS, the Internet of Surfers, and the collective exactly. intelligence from all around the world, pretty passionate people about what they do, and they're going to make a difference. Yeah, you know, here's some other examples. You know, my, my buddy, Steve Pratt, you know, this is a guy who grew up at Deloitte Consulting, ended up running um, the CRM consulting practice, uh, has had a massive career in 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 kind of a, what you might call strategic technology consulting. Uh, well, he's now the CEO of this company called Noodle.ai. And they are, uh, you know, at a high level, you and I would call them a supply chain cloud software company, but they really rethought this whole thing. Their, their, their mission is to optimize manufacturing and, and supply chains, manufacturing and distribution in a whole new way using this new data technology, new AI and ML technology. And there's some incredible insights that I didn't realize. There's 443 billion globally in supply chain waste. Just waste. Because, you know, we don't know what's where and who's here. And, when, and so shit goes bad. You know, 40% of the food on the planet rots, right? Uh, 40 to 50%, and I didn't know this, this was a stunner, Steve taught me this, 40 to 50% of trucks on the road are empty because they're not optimized. And just that alone creates 42 billion wasted miles. You know, so think of, think of the cost of that, and then uh, 97 million tons of CO2. And so they're applying, you know, data to everything, technologies, ML, AI, et cetera, to completely reimagine supply chains and manufacturing to pull out uh, both economic waste, time waste, and of course, um, uh, to try to make a difference in, 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 in the environment. And so, um, and, you know, this is an area where, you know, by way of example, one of the companies that you and I love to uh, shit on the most, or certainly I love to shit on the most, SAP, you know, these guys, the old legacy guys are not doing this, right? And so uh, Noodle takes information from legacy ERP apps and various other apps, and of course, leverages the internet of things and many other the more modern technologies and pulls them all together to create uh, an optimized environment for supply chains and for manufacturing to try to get at this problem, right? Another example that I love, I met, I met these folks through my friends at, um, at Splunk, who, who, as you know, I'm very proud to be associated with a company called Zonehaven. And what Zonehaven's trying to do, their startup, and they're trying to use all these forward-leaning technologies to fight fires. So, you know, in California, we have this horrible wildfire problem. Of course, we've seen what's happened in Australia. It's absolutely devastating when you fire up your browser or turn on the news on TV to see, to see that. And so what, what these folks have said is, how do we use all the good new shit to... Uh, number one, sense that there's a fire. Well, up until very recently, Bob, in the Sierras anyway, you know how they sensed there was a fire? They paid a dude to hang out in a tower and look around and hopefully not fall asleep and go, oh, hey, over there on the, on the right, I think I see some, some smoke over there. Somebody, 
get on a walkie-talkie and tell them to go take a look, right? That's, that's where we've been. Well, today we can put sensors and we can put cameras and so forth, and we can IoT um, uh, enable an entire region that's prone to wildfires. And, but they go much further than just detecting. Uh, they take uh, geolocation data, they take population data, they take weather data, and they can begin to do things like this, make recommendations to firefighters as to where to go. Uh, uh, give firefighters instantaneous information on the weather, on the wind, and so, so there can be um, forward-leaning predictive approaches to where the fire might move next, okay? And then they can give them real-time information on, on traffic, on, on roads and so forth, and, and their technology can be predictive and suggestive around how to begin, how and when to begin evacuations if that's appropriate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so by having this uh, sensing capability and kind of real-time data, you get the magical combination of firefighters on the ground doing a heroic job, leveraging modern digital technology to fight fires in real times and literally save lives, of course, and potentially billions of dollars in destroyed land and destroyed property. This, this shit is very exciting to me. Not so different from what some of the folks are doing with the agriculture, right, Chris? A little more intelligent, you know. Get, yes, get it, to me, it's all, it's all variations on a theme, right? Yeah, yeah. So, Chris, sounds like you're fairly bullish on, you know, uh, I, I, I still think there are some uh, bedwetters who get all nervous about AI and ML. It's, you know, like with anything, if misused, yeah, it's not going to be good. But I, I think there's great reason for optimism. I think so. And look, I don't want to get political. I try not to. But, um, you know, there was this guy who, who pulled out of the Democratic race, Andrew Yang, and, and I found him very entertaining and actually quite endearing as a person. But I couldn't disagree with him more on, you know, AI is going to destroy everybody's jobs. And the answer is like, let, I, I, he was very creative. And I thought it was great marketing to call it a quote unquote freedom dividend. But like, you know, he's going to give everybody a thousand bucks to stay home and drink beer or whatever the fuck. Right. I couldn't look. Here's what I know with all due respect to that line of thinking. If you're a hist if you're a history major, if you study the history of innovation from the minute we create the wheel, it starts, right? From the minute we discover fire, it starts. Look, at the time, might we have said, hey, listen, the wheel's gonna get rid of all these jobs because all these people who have to haul shit around on their backs and their heads are gonna be unemployed. And what are we gonna do? And maybe we need a freedom dividend so that people don't have to, because now, well, okay, so we don't invent the wheel, is that what we're doing? And so my point is, with all due respect to the Andrew Yangs of the world, the Luddites are always wrong, always, right? And so whether you want to talk about the wheel or fire or, you know, is the world better off because we invented the cloud? Fuck yeah, it is, right? And so uh, I'm enthusiastic about these things. I think the opportunity for new value creation, new business creation, and frankly, for making a difference for the humanity and the environment increases with this technology as demonstrated by a couple of these things we just talked about. And there was this recent report that came out from the folks at uh, ENY 
they did a survey of CEOs to find out kind of where they were thinking about AI. Well, it turns out 85% of US CEOs and business leaders are optimists about it. And 87% said they are investing in AI initiatives this year. And so the other thing that's very cool is um, people are getting it. People are getting on board. They're realizing there's a massive opportunity here to, to, to optimize things, to, to, to become more efficient, and, and not just make existing things more effective, but frankly, to reimagine and to create whole new things that we could, who would have ever thought you could mobilize 23 million surfers to help the environment, right? But we're doing it. Great numbers there, Chris. Uh, on the CEOs, I always wanted to, if 87% of those CEO respondents are investing in AI, I want to go talk to the 13% say, um, hey, look, what, what, what's the problem here? What, what, what's the hold up? You think this is a fad? You think it's going to go away? Or, uh, but we'll let them, we'll leave them to their own. Uh, I, think, I think they do what I've done with my recent knee, inju knee injury. I hurt myself about a year ago, my left knee, and I did what a lot of dudes, I think, do, which is just ignore it and it'll go away well it turns out i need a new meniscus you know so it's like well maybe you should get on that there jimmy <laughs> <laughs> hey it's only been a year wait till you get to five years then you can call yourself stubborn but for now it's just <laughs> you're, you're you're just uh you know testing it so chris uh, a brief uh mention a minute ago about politics and you know we'll sort of leave politics over here a little but let's say you're running something like having to do with the national election or the the determination of a national political candidate for president of the United States. Would you, Chris Lockhead, rush in with an untested app? So I just had to bring this thing up about Iowa because, look, I'm a guy who spent more than half a decade of his life trying to build and grow a company called Mercury that got its start in, in, in software quality testing. And, you know, we had a mantra there about software quality, and it went like this, test 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 and then when it's in production monitor 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 right and so uh, apparently um that didn't get through to the the chairman of the democratic uh, committee in iowa and there's been some reports out there they they first of all they hired a company called shadow inc to build the app now i, I don't know as a marketing guy, I'm not sure that I would want to call my company Shadow Inc. that was building um, voting apps, but okay, whatever. Well, it turns out, if you read the news reports, this app was built in two fucking months, Bob. Now, you've been in this industry a long time. Can you, any application, any use case of consequence, hard to get done in two months, right? I mean, for most test, companies, test, it's hard test. for them to re-engineer their homepage in two months. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. And the other thing, it's like, it's sort of like, you know, when you show up at the airport and there's long lines, every time that happens, I go, how's this possible? They knew we were coming. They knew we were coming. And so my point is the Democratic uh, Party in Iowa knew this was coming. They, they, had, they had four years of advanced warning. And yet they took two months to build this app. And so I think it's just, it's the flip side of, of, of the excitement that I have around digital technology, which is if we don't do it right, we're going to bung up an entire election in this case. And listen, uh, make no mistake, uh, um, uh, what's his name now? Troy Price, the chairman of the Iowa Democratic Party, no longer has a job. And so 
I think a it's an important thing for us to think about as we look as as digital technology enters politics and voting. I think we have to think about this very very thoughtfully. But I also think those of us in the business world, testing, 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 all this new stuff is awesome. But if it blows up and we do dumb shit like build a strategic application in two months and don't test it, bad things are going to happen. And so on one hand, yes, go for it, move, build new apps, get digital, get on it. But at the same time, let's not forget our best practices. Let's not forget that like, hey, maybe before this thing goes live, let's make sure it's going to work. And when we, when we deliver it, let's make sure that we have the optimization and monitoring uh, technologies in places that's good, good old-fashioned systems management in the new age so that we can make sure that these new strategic apps that we're betting our business on, or in this case, betting an entire state's election on for one party, actually works as opposed to uh, screwing up, costing people their jobs. And frankly... Um, you know, I think it, I think it has hurt, um, the credibility of the democratic party. Didn't help it. Didn't help it. And I don't uh, think Chris, that your, your comments there about the need to test stuff. I don't think that puts you in the light eyed category. It's just a a little bit, the intelligence side of the, you know, the innovation, uh, demon here. It's gotta happen. Um, Chris, you have been just phenomenally successful three years now as a podcaster, the recognition you've got in a number of areas and uh, it has been wonderful. So you know, and you live in, and you, uh, you, you've helped really drive and inspire this category. But this next item that you had, I think it's, a, it's an oddball thing in some way, but it shows too, again, this new type of information engagement that people have with podcasting. There's no boundaries, right? And this, this is a remarkable piece you've uncovered here. This new podcast um, uh, called the Harvey Weinstein Trial Unfiltered. Um, but before I get to the specifics of that, here's the big aha for me. You know, I hear a lot of stuff about, oh, you know, podcasts, it just went, we just, there's, now there's over 800,000 podcasts. It's too late for podcasting. You know, we're oversaturated, blah, blah, blah. Um, Look, we just saw at the Oscars and the Grammys two new young female artists ascend, you know, this Billie Eilish and this gal Lizzo. And both of them are amazing. I particularly love Lizzo. Um, Well, let's just think about this. How many songs have ever been recorded? How many albums have ever been recorded? Gazillions, right? And, And let's just take Lizzo by way of example. Did Lizzo say, oh, well, you know, Paul McCartney's the greatest songwriter ever. Uh, he sold more records than anybody ever else will. There's no way you're ever going to catch him. So fuck it. Uh, songwriting and, and music performance is finished. Uh, uh, I, I'm going to go home and learn how to be a carpenter or a plumber because you can't, you can't make it in music. No, she didn't. She innovated. She did cool stuff. And, and, and these young artists are breaking and taking new ground. And, 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 you know, how many love songs have been written, right? A bazillion, right? And they're still doing this stuff. And so my point is, we're in the, I think even with 800,000 podcasts, I think we're in the first inning. That's point A. Point B, if you go back and look at the history of television, it's very illustrative to podcasting. Because in the beginning of TV, when the TV cameras created and the whole infrastructure gets, begin, begins to get built out, you know what the first TV shows were? 
they took television cameras and put them in a theater and they essentially videotaped a play. That's where we're at in podcasting for the most part. Most podcasts are not innovative. I don't even consider them real podcasts because what they are are radio shows on the internet. Just like in the beginning, we put Shakespeare plays or whatever on TV. And over time in television, people want, hey, wait a minute. The new technology opens up opportunities for new creativity that we couldn't have imagined before. And how do we, instead of uh, uh, taking the old and using the new technology to deliver the old, what if we actually use the technology to create something new? And then, and then people began to innovate and they continue to innovate to this day. And so um, here's the aha. Radio, like television, has a bunch of massive constraints. First of all, there's a time constraint because of cost, right? And so NPR or pick your favorite radio station, they can't have a two-hour conversation about technology because it's too expensive, right? Um, and, and then they got to edit everything and they got to do all that. So here, here's my point. Most podcasts, for the most part, are radio shows on the internet. They're not taking advantage of the possibilities that the new technology represents. So with all that said, let's sort of tease out this new, I've been obsessed with this new podcast. So it's called the Harvey Weinstein trial unfiltered. And here's the aha two journalists, a husband and wife team. Uh, they're, they're, they're Irish as shit. Philip McAleer and Anne McElhaney. And they've got these wonderful Irish accents. They're lifelong journalists have this idea that goes like this. You know, back in the day when the uh, um, OJ trial was going on, there was cameras in the courtroom and we saw that, that was, there was some negative blowback to that. So that's not going on with Weinstein. So what do these two husband and wife journalists come up with? They say, hmm, what if we go to the trial every day, uh, uh, take notes, figure out sort of what happened that day, document all of it, get a transcript of what happened. And then as soon as the day ends on the trial, they'd sort of uh, map all that stuff out and they create a podcast where A, the two journalists sort of give you context and commentary. And then B, this is the real super innovative part. They take actual transcripts of the most seminal moments of the day and they get actors to read those pieces of transcript to the word. And so they interstitial their dialogue, their, their, their commentary with uh, actors reading it. And the way they do this, the trial's taking place in New York. So they get all this stuff done in New York and then they have actors in LA read the pieces and they stitch the whole thing together overnight, Bob. And so if you listen to Wednesday's episode, you're hearing Tuesday's commentary and Tuesday's reenactment of the exact transcripts. And so in a plus or minus hour long podcast, they're putting you in the trial. And I actually think it's more compelling than watching it on TV live. And, and so A, it's, it's an incredibly uh, engaging podcast. B, there's a whole lot of facts about this that I didn't know that, that are head scratchers um, that, that hasn't been reported in the mainstream media 
Uh, and so it's it, it, it's fascinating as a consumer to listen to this podcast, in my opinion. But most importantly, at a at a mega level, um, this husband and wife team has come up with a new category, a new paradigm for using the the technology that is podcasting in a deeply innovative, groundbreaking, ground-taking way. And to me, that's indicative of the fact that we're still very early and there's massive opportunity for innovation and creativity in podcasting. And as you could probably tell by my voice, I'm incredibly excited about that. Yeah, Chris, I hope you'll get a chance to meet them. Uh, I've been a big fan of Salem and Ann, some of their work in different ways. They've done movies, they've written books, they've been fiercely independent about things. And a minute ago, you mentioned the mainstream media. They're not affiliated with any big media company and they're free then to sort of go out and create, you know, the, the, the future that they want to see. So the, I, I'm not at all surprised about that, you know, very innovative approach they've taken here. But I wanted to ask you, you said the trials in New York, they're in New York and these actors in LA. Yeah, my understanding, if, I, if I've gotten it right, is they have a distributed team of folks um, who are working on the podcast, editors, uh, producers, actors, and so forth, and it's a distributed team, and they essentially have to work overnight so that in the mor- so on, you know, on, a, on, on Wednesday morning, you get um, the, the show that is based on everything that happened on Tuesday. And so they're taking advantage of the time difference and the distributed nature of the team. They've sort of explained it, not in a lot of detail, but they've explained it bit, bit, and bit, bit by bit here on, on the podcast. And so that's my synthesis of what I think I heard them say. All right, because I want to so say they're following the sun a little bit to use the, the time zone to get the actors. Because I don't say, oh, what, there's a problem with New York actors? What is this? They've got to go to L.A.? <laughs> I, that part, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I have no idea about that. But no, no, what I do know is they, they're working their tails off so that it can be as close to real time as possible. I think it's incredibly well done. And I also, yeah, this is a side note. There's been some criticism on their uh, sort of how they've done this. Uh, the two, the husband and wife sort of talk over each other and interrupt each other and they're Irish. So sometimes they say Weinstein and Weinstein and, and whatever. And, and, and some people criticize them for that. And there's a, there's, a, there's a casual nature to what they're doing. And to that, I say with no due respect, go fuck yourself. I think that's fantastic that it doesn't feel overproduced. It doesn't feel like NPR. It doesn't feel like a Fox thing. It doesn't feel like a wondery thing or whatever. It's okay that it's a little bit um, uh, more Real. casual, I think. Yeah, geez, it almost sounds like, you know, regular people talking about something, too. Well, then how about that, then? Yeah, (laughs) remarkable. And Chris, you know, this is probably a cliche, too, but the thing you're talking about, you know, that uh, uh, people seeing like this is the end of innovation and all that. I think it was in uh, around 1907. There was a, a, I'm sure, a very nice bureaucrat. He's running the U.S. Patent Office. And he sent a formal letter. And I know I've got a copy of this somewhere, but to his boss, he was recommending, this is in 1907, there was a very cool new patent they had just given out for some sort of uh, machine device. And he wrote a letter to his boss saying, we should now shut down the US Patent Office because everything that has been invented, you know, can be invented, has been invented. So there is this uh, ongoing theme in the human brain that that we continue to think that now this is it this is the end and I, so i love your uh, excitement and energy and enthusiasm about it and some of the 
remarkable things that some of your buddies are doing down to this thing, what's going on at the podcast, the enthusiasm among CEOs about AI and ML and other things like that. And ultimately, I think it gives us reason to be confident about, uh, in spite of some of our uh, dumber moments, the human race's ability to deal with stuff. So we've got this coronavirus uh, coming up the road now, and you, you have maybe a closing thought about this. As well. <laughs> Generally, I'm bullish on humanity and technology, as you can tell. Uh, this one uh, sort of dampens it down a little. <laughs> and so, of course, um, uh, there's also a beer called Corona. And uh, it turns out that in January, beer coronavirus surged over 3,200% globally on... <laughs> on Google and, uh, and similar terms along those lines of, of, of risen by thousands and a percent here. And so um, my fear about people confusing um, the beer, and I don't know if you've seen any of these funny internet memes of like people wearing face masks, pouring out bottles of Corona and, and the like. And so when I, when I hear about this, I think, uh, oh God, the people who think that they, the way to get rid of the coronavirus is to pour out bottles of Corona beer are those people allowed to vote, Bob? Yeah. <laughs> are those people allowed to procreate? I think if you if you if you if you think that you get the coronavirus from beer, I think you should forfeit your right to procreate. Uh, well, I think that's an excellent point, sir. And uh, Chris, overall, though, it's a it is a lively world we live in. You you do a wonderful job, you know, synthesizing some stuff, bringing the unique touch and perspective to it. Uh, what's your closing thought here as you, you sort of pull some of these different threads together? Well, I think the big one is, um, I think we live at the greatest time in, in human history. There's no question about that. Uh, the boo birds are wrong. Um, the quality of life on the planet has never been higher. Wealth on the planet has never been higher. Our ability to uh, you know, uh, all joking aside on the coronavirus, and it's a very scary uh, thing. However, if you look at how globally we've been able to mobilize versus how we were globally able to mobilize around SARS, uh, it's pretty extraordinary. This thing could be much worse than it is. And we're not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. So what, however you want to look at it, whether it's um, business innovation, technology innovation, the digital revolution, um, life has never been better. And I think for those of us in the business technology world, um, you know, our limitation is our own creativity. Uh, if you look at the conversation around podcasting. And so look, are there problems? Of course, there are problems. Are, are, is there a lack of justice and injustice in our world? Absolutely. Is there economic disparity and, and distribution of wealth and opportunity that needs to, of course there are. Do we have, so I'm not ignorant of many of the problems that we have in our society. However, uh, we live in an extraordinary time. And I think if, if those of us who are lucky enough to be living at the intersection of business and technology, uh, I think if you're not excited, if you're not engaged, if you're not committed, uh, you're not paying attention. Yeah. That's a very, uh, very kind way, I think, to sum up uh, uh, what's going on with some of those people there. Chris, fantastic stuff. Uh, always a pleasure being with you and uh, really, really enjoyed it this week. I'm, I'm 
I've got to run here because I got a case of Corona beer that I, I got to get rid of. I just, I just heard that it's, it's deadly. So I got to go dump that. But <laughs> great to see you, my friend. Look forward to seeing you next month, Chris. Thank you, brother. Love you. All right. And all you folks out there, thank you so much for being with us here at Cloud Wars. We look forward to seeing you next time. Uh, make it a good month and we'll see you soon.